And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Psalm 16. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is God's word. Good evening. Let me add my welcome. My name's uh, Phil. If we haven't met, uh, I hope you're able to stay around afterwards. If you can keep that... Actually, which page in the Bible? Uh, let's go for Psalm 16. That's where we'll spend most of our time. If you keep your finger in that page, and you'll find there's an outline if you want to take notes. Let's pray for God's help as we turn to look at his word together. Our Father God, we pray that you would help us to understand the truth about the Lord Jesus so that we might know the contentment that comes from knowing that he is our God and he is good. Amen. Okay, which world would you rather live in? World A, you earn £80,000. Everybody else earns £40,000. World B, you earn £150,000. Everybody else earns £250,000. 
And in every survey, the vast majority of us would rather live in world A. Because it's not how much I earn that matters, it's how much I earn compared with everybody else. How much does a man need to earn to be happy? Just a little bit more than his wife's sister's husband. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> See, uh, we, we live our lives in comparison with others. We're always trying to keep up with the Joneses. That's the way we work. And the basis of, not all, but most modern advertising is this. Here is a world in which you are much happier than the world you currently live in. Because in this world, you own this, you drive this, you smell like this, you look like this. You do this job. That's how advertising works. Your life will be so much better if only you were in this world rather than in the sucky real world in which you live now. And it's designed to stir discontent in our hearts and a longing for stuff we haven't got. It's designed to to make us covet, if you like. We live our lives in comparison. We're always trying to keep up with the Joneses. And what I want is determined by what you have. So often. It's the way we work. It's the way our hearts work. But the Tenth Commandment, the Tenth Commandment of God's Ten Commandments says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Don't envy other people. Don't covet their possessions. Don't covet their salary, their jobs, their houses, their family. Don't covet the things other people have and you do not have. We're right at the end of uh, the Ten Commandments. Um, this is the, the final talk in Exodus. We, we've finished the Ten Commandments. Remember, not a ladder to climb up to God as if keep them well enough and God will be really impressed and he'll accept you. Rather, they're train tracks. Once God has saved you, they help you to, to live a full and a free life, to, to run fast and free in God's world. Uh, and remember, too, that Jesus summarized God's fundamental aim for us. He said that the, the law, the Ten Commandments, summarize... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments are ten concrete directions to help us know how to love God and how to love one another. That's what's going on with these commandments. But what exactly is meant in this Tenth Commandment when it says, do not covet? Uh, The old word for it was concupiscence which doesn't really help us very much. We don't use that word. Um, what it means is really a consuming desire for stuff I haven't got, but somebody else has. It's a consuming, an over-desire for stuff I haven't got now, but that somebody else does have. So the issue is not desire, but over-desire. God designed us to have really strong desires and and joys. He he designed us to to desire and to enjoy sunshine and wine and chocolate and pizza and skiing and sex and music. Probably not all at the same time, but he designed us to enjoy. He designed us to have really strong desires and and physical joy is part of what God designed us to, to want and to have. The issue with the Tenth Commandment is a desire that masters me. When it stops being, I want this thing, and starts being, it is wrong that I haven't got it. It is unfair. It is just, life shouldn't be and can't carry on like this. It's just, they have it, I don't, and that is wrong. And I want it, and I need it. That's when it starts to become coveting. See, my iPhone 5 works just fine. 
Except it no longer works just fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just I've seen somebody with an iPhone 6. (laughs) And now it's just not quite good enough. I want one. I need one. Uh, My salary is all right. Uh, Until I find that the person who was hired at the same time as me has got a raise. And and now I can never live on this ridiculously meagre figure. It's the way we work. See, coveting is, is basically, it's a toxic cycle of I see what the Joneses have, I want what the Joneses have, I need what the Joneses have, so I get. And then I'm happy for a brief moment before I see something else. And I want that, and I need that, and I get that, and I'm happy, and then I see something else. And we always think that when I get the thing, I will be happy. Because we're fools and we, we misunderstand that the nature of coveting, the nature of envy, is not the desire for a thing, but the desire for more. And we can never satisfy the desire for more. There's something else that's toxic about coveting, and that is that it leads us not just to want the stuff that others have, but also to resent the others who have the stuff that we want. See, the truth is that long-term it is very, very hard to remain good friends with people who have stuff that you want and you don't have. It gets harder and harder to be a good friend to people who have stuff you really want. And you cannot keep God's law and love people when you're consumed with envy, with covetousness for the stuff they have, and that you don't. You just can't love people when you feel like that. And lastly, of course, coveting stops us enjoying what we do have. I'm incapable of enjoying my life if I spend my entire time wishing I had other stuff. You see it in the, in what a friend of mine calls the property porn. You know how it is. You, you walk past the estate agents or you accidentally open Metro to the, um, to the property section when you're on the tube. And if you notice, there's a, there's a simple rule that goes on. You never look at cheaper things than the place you live in now. Smaller things, worse things. You always look at nicer, bigger, more expensive places. You never look at smaller places and think, I'm so grateful I live in where I do. I'm so grateful I don't live there. Instead, you look at bigger, nicer places and say, oh, I wish I lived there. It'd be so nice. Wouldn't it be lovely? Think of all the ministry I could do. All the people I could have round. How hospitable I could be. But you just... You look at stuff you haven't got that's nicer and you feel bad. You stop yourself from enjoying what you have because you're so busy being consumed with the desire for the stuff you haven't got. You see, so often we fall into this silly trap of we think God's laws are limiting and suck the joy out of life. We think God's, God's laws are a fence, a barrier, keeping me away from, from what is good and what is fun. But actually they're a barrier and a fence keeping me away from what is rotting and ugly and harmful and will damage me. God warns us about coveting because coveting is toxic. Coveting rots our hearts. Coveting turns us away from God and other people and in on ourselves. It it poisons our relationships. It makes us resentful and miserable rather than joyful and generous. And it kills our love for God and our love for other people. So don't covet. Don't covet. Great, we've got that clear. Except, uh, my favourite ever Far Side cartoon... 
It's not a blank screen, I promise you. <laughs> Maybe it won't appear. Oh, well. Uh, you know the one. Uh, the, the guy with the symbols. Have you seen that one? This time I won't screw up. This time I won't screw up. This time I won't screw up. And the orchestra. And the strap line below, Roger screws up. It's one of the greatest cartoons ever made. And the, see, that's the problem. Don't covet. I won't covet. I mustn't covet. I mustn't covet. And then you walk out of church and log on to Facebook. And you see the holiday your friend has had, the house they've moved into, the happy family. Or you talk to people at work, or the car drives past, or you walk past those nice new flats towards your flat. And you can say, don't covet, don't covet, don't covet, don't covet, till you're blue in the face, and it makes not a blind bit of difference. Which is what brings us to Psalm 16, which if you notice when we read it, does not mention coveting. Has nothing to do with the 10th commandment in one sense, except that Psalm 16, to my mind, contains the truths that you and I need to drive into our hearts if we are to be able to kill coveting. In it, David teaches the truths that he's learned that enable him to keep the 10th commandment, which is why we're going to spend the most of our time uh, in Psalm 16, and we'll learn the who, the what, the where, and the when of blessing. These are lessons we've got to drive into our hearts if we want to be free from coveting. So, Psalm 16, page 549, verses 1 to 4. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord in capitals in verse 2 is the covenant name Yahweh. It means the God who makes promises and then read the Old Testament and you'll see he's the God who keeps promises. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The God who ties himself to history because he's trustworthy and you can look at his track record. This God... And the psalmist says, this God is my God. It's not just that he knows there is a God and that, you know, gives him comfort. It's not even that he knows about God, that he says, this God, the God of the Bible, that God is my God, personally. I can say he's mine. And I wonder if you can say the same tonight. Can you say, God is my God? And he knows that everything good there is, is granted by this God. Verse 2, apart from you, I have no good thing. And so verse 4, he does not run after other gods, which is a rather odd image in our minds. We may not know very much about God things, but we're pretty sure whatever, we're not running after other gods. And if we have statues in our house, it's not because we think they have the power to bless us. It's because they look good when we were on holiday in Indonesia. That's all. But what he means by gods and idols in the Bible is something very, very different. It's the things, well, there are a number of ways to look at it. But in terms of the 10th commandment, it's the things I look at and think, if only I had that, I would be happy. Life really would. It would feel like I'd arrived at one if I had that. And David has learned not to seek happiness, that deep abiding happiness in stuff. Instead, he looks to God and says, I know this God will give me everything I need. So I don't chase stuff thinking if I had that, if I was married to them, if I had did this, if I 
No, he knows that actually true contentment is found in this God, not in the stuff he gives. And so he says in verse 4 that the sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. Because he knows that actually only the, only the true God can bring real happiness. Eventually we will, we'll come unstuck. We'll be failed by or we will fail the other things that we chase after. But David has found that this God, the God of the Bible, is his God. So that's the who of blessing. The God of the Bible is the one that he trusts in for everything. But there's more to freeing our hearts from envy than simply committing ourselves to the God of the Bible, saying, look, I look to this God, I look to the God of the Bible, I pray to him. We need to know more. Envy dies and contentment grows when we are confident that this God not only exists, but that he is generous and he is good and that he will freely give me all that I really need. I'll only be content when I believe those things. And so, secondly, in verses 5 to 8, we see the what of blessing. Verse 5. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. The image here is life is a meal, God is serving, and he's very generous with his portions. Even Richard Criddle will get fat at this meal. That's what he's saying. He's saying, it is, God is generous. Everything I have comes from God. And he provides my portion and my cup. Verse 6, he, he changes the image, but it's the same thing really. He says, the boundary lines of my life have been drawn by God. In other words, God has decided in a most literal sense, he's decided how big your, well, I'd say how big your garden is, but this is London, how big your pot plant is. Or uh, He has determined how many square feet the flat you live in is. It also means he has determined how much money you earn. He's determined how big your family is. Everything God has determined. He has assigned you your portion and your cup. And he is at your right hand, verse 8. And when he is at your right hand, he is solid. And therefore, nothing can shake you so much that you fall completely. God is there to strengthen you. God is solid ground on which to stand. In other words, he's not a, a sort of boutique market stall sort of God. You know, great if you've got marriage problems, but money problems, not really my, you have to talk to somebody else. No, he's a Tesco out of town superstore God. He deals with everything. Absolutely everything. Every need we have, this God provides for. He is the only God you need, and everything comes from him. You worried about money? Pray to this God. You just, received a raise or an inheritance pray with thanks to this god because ultimately it came from him do you long for a a partner or children or house or new job pray to this god all those things are in his hands at his disposal do you enjoy those things well thank this god they came from him everything we want or need comes from him But you'll only be content when you learn the other side of these verses. See, it's not enough to just know, God gives me everything I have. You see, I need to learn that God has drawn the boundary lines for my life, which means that God isn't just good in the stuff that he has ruled inside my boundary lines. 
I need to learn that God is good also in the things that he's ruled outside of the boundary lines of my life right now. Do I believe that God is good when things I want are not within my life right now? That's the real challenge. Do I believe he's good when the the boundary lines don't fall for me where I want them to fall? One of the few box sets I've watched uh, more than once, um, once you've been through all five of the box sets on Netflix, um, you sort of go back to the physical s- discs, and we're, I've seen Band of Brothers a whole heap of times, and it is brilliant. If you haven't seen it, watch it. Band of Brothers is, um, is basically the true account of um, one particular unit in the American army in the Second World War. Easy Company from the 506th Airborne Division. It's, um, and it takes them from D-Day right through to the end of the war. And one of the episodes involves them um, coming across a Nazi concentration camp. The guards have fled, but the poor people are still in there. And the soldiers just, I mean, it's like hell. It really is. Just these wraith-like figures staggering around, dropping dead left and right, starved to skeletal exhaustion. And the soldiers uh, quickly go to the town and get all the food they can and start handing it out to, to these poor, starving people. And the doctor arrives and he realizes that rich food, like the bread and the cheese the soldiers have found, will kill them. Their stomachs just can't cope with it. And so there's this horrific scene where the soldiers are having to wrestle back food from these poor, starving people who are trying to grab it and eat it. And they can't understand that the Americans said they'd come to rescue them and and, and we're, we're dying for lack of food. And here's food and you are taking it away from us. What are you doing? But they know that it will kill them. They know that... Actually, right now, right now you can't handle this thing that you desperately want. Right now it wouldn't be the best thing for you. And you see, you and I, we, we, see, we see things we desperately want. Good things. Not bad things, but good things. And, and we want them and we pray for them and we pray for them. And then we see God give them to other people. And we think, how can, but God, I'm hungry and there is food. Why wouldn't you give me this? Other people are enjoying it. Why not me? And we need to learn to trust that our God, like the doctor, knows what is best for us. That our God gives us what we need, but he also knows when things won't be good for us right now. See, contentment and a heart that is able to resist the tidal wave of pressure, both internally and externally, to covet other stuff only comes when I am convinced deep down at a heart level that God, you are good for the things I have and God, you are good even in the things I don't have. But a confidence like that has to be carefully nurtured. If you haven't noticed, it doesn't just sort of happen automatically. You won't hear it um, blared out on the radio. You won't read about it anywhere else. You've got to drill it down into your heart yourself. And every day of your life, you are bombarded with ads and relationships and conversations that just destroy contentment. I mean, the, the UK advertising industry doesn't spend four billion a year because you and I aren't affected by adverts. We buy the lie. And therefore, we need to, to teach truths, to apply truths, to preach truths to ourselves, to kill this grumbling. One of my favorite is, uh, is one we looked at um, earlier on in the year from Romans 8. Romans 8 verse 32, Paul argues this. He, that is God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Can you think of any parent who would give up their own child, who would let their child die for your sake? God did. It's exactly what God did. And if God the Father was willing to give up his own son to save you, do you really think there is anything, anything that you do really need that he wouldn't also give you? You can be certain this God will give you everything you truly need, even if he doesn't give me everything I desperately want. Finally then, in the last verses, we see the where and the when of blessing. Verses 9 to 11. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. You see, God is generous. I guess um, we all have things that we, almost all of us will, will know there are things in our lives we really want. There are things we'd love to change. But I don't know of any Christian whose testimony is not that God has been supremely generous, even in this life. And yet, and yet, it's only when you zoom out, it's only when you look not just to this life, but to the life to come, to eternity, that you really see how good and generous our God and Father is. As we look to the future, we can be confident and live without fear, not because we've got a pension or health care or a stable economy, but because our future is secure in the hands of our God and Father. Our, our God has promised, verse 10, that he will not abandon us to the grave. Interestingly, this declaration of, of confidence in, in God's protection of his Holy One was taken by Peter in Acts 2. And he realized that actually this is really talking about Jesus Christ. And so as he preached the first sermon after the Holy Spirit fell upon God's people in Acts 2, he preached from, from Psalm 16, verses 9 to 11. And he understood that Jesus Christ was the one who perfectly trusted his Father, that he was the Holy One who God would protect, that he was the one who, verses 9 to 11, rested secure, because although he willingly went to death, he knew he wouldn't rot in a grave, but he would rise to abundant, glorious, pulsating, eternal new life. And so Jesus knew... And Jesus is the first person to really get this psalm, if you like, that there is a when, there is a future. This life is not the time when you look for God's ultimate blessing. There is an eternal life to come. The second thing, though, is that there is a where of blessing. At the end, verse 11, eternal pleasures are at your right hand. You see, God is the source of everything good, true, beautiful, funny, exciting, stimulating. Everything like that comes from God. And therefore, you can honestly say, although it sounds a bit crass, where God is, that is where the party will be. Because God is the source of all joy. 
When, when Jesus wanted us to get our thick, get this idea into our thick heads that he really is full of joy and eternal life will be worth it, he turned up at a wedding party and turned 600 litres of dishwater into 600 litres of Chateau Neuf de Pap. That's how Jesus tries to convince us. Look, it will be fun. It won't be like a sermon that never ends. It'll be an amazing party when you get to heaven. You will enjoy it enormously. Everything fun, tasty, true, rich, beautiful will be there. Because God will be there, and he created those things at the start. And you see, I think that so often, you and I, we disobey God because we do not believe, verse 11, eternal pleasures are at your right hand. We don't believe, firstly, that it will be worth waiting for what God has in store. We think, if I don't have stuff now, I'll miss out. (laughs) Ah, We don't believe that actually the pleasures of this life are thin and shadowy. Heaven will be to this life the, like uh, the smell of good food to the taste. It smells great when you smell a really good meal, but the taste is a thousand times better. And the best experiences of this life are like the smell of great food. But in heaven, we will eat and drink the real thing. We will not miss out. Nothing we miss out will, will not be worth it in the age to come. And secondly, I think we don't believe that real pleasure is found at God's right hand. We think, I need to get it. God doesn't give what's best. And so instead of waiting for eternity and waiting for God to give with his right hand, we grab it now with my right hand. We click on the link. We take out the credit card for another splurge. We indulge in a bit of flirty banter with just someone who should be off limits. But why would I do that when all pleasure, eternal pleasure, are found at the right hand of God, my King? And one day you and I will realize that the greatest joy is not the amazing gifts that God gives, not the amazing pleasures of a remade world, but the one who remakes the world, the one who gives the gift. It's knowing Jesus Christ is the greatest thing of all. And the amazing part is that when you and I put our trust in Jesus, the things that are true of him in verses 9 to 11 become true for you and me too. I remember I was pretty disappointed when I realized this psalm was actually not all about me. It was all about Jesus. I was like, oh, I quite like that psalm. How disappointing. It's about Jesus. I like things to be about me. (laughs) Don't pretend you're not the same. Uh, But then I realized it's actually better that it's about Jesus. Because... When we trust in Jesus, we are in him. We're included in him. The Rugby World Cup's coming up soon, which for some of us is very exciting, for others of us is, uh, indulge me. Um, England are going to win. Uh, yeah. Uh, when we win like we did before in 2003 in Australia, um, the, uh, we won because one man called Johnny Wilkinson could kick a ball straight. And when he kicked, we all, the English, shouted, we won. I didn't do anything but cheer. One man kicked, we all win because he represents us. When he puts on that jersey, he represents us. And when Jesus conquered sin on the cross, when he conquered death by rising from the grave, we won. If you trust in Jesus, we won. And then when we turn to these verses, you and I aren't just trusting in a promise that God in the future will, he will somehow preserve me from when I die, uh, he'll keep me and I won't rot in the grave, I'll rise to eternal life. We're trusting in a promise that has already been fulfilled in Jesus. 
And it is so much easier to trust in a promise that's already been fulfilled. It's, you know, come Christmas time, there'll be presents wrapped under the tree, and you kind of, you've got a promise, I've bought you something nice. Well, this is the difference between, well, you've seen the receipt for what they've bought, accidentally. Uh, and although it's wrapped, you can't see what's in there. You've seen the receipt, you know it's been bought, and it's under the tree. We see in Jesus, God's already done it. He's already raised his holy one from the grave. He's already brought him to his right-hand side to eternal pleasure. And if we trust in Jesus, then we too will surely rise and join him one day, and we will share in his glory. Coveting is not good for us. That's why God says don't covet. Coveting turns me in on myself, and it causes me to focus on what I don't have rather than to enjoy what I do have. It causes me to focus on, on, on want rather than need. It causes me to doubt God's goodness as I look at the gap between what I've convinced I should have and what God has actually given me. And at the root of all sin is the belief that God is not good. It's the lie that Adam and Eve believe at the root of everything in the Garden of Eden that God is not good for denying them the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you believe that lie, that God is not good in the things he hasn't given you, it leads to shriveled, miserable lives, enslaved by bitterness and grumbling. It stops you loving God because you're convinced he's not lovable. It stops you loving others because you just resent what they have. And we'll never draw others to want to know this God. We'll never be good witnesses of Jesus Christ if it's patently obvious to everybody that we don't think he's a very good God. And we leave ourselves open to doubt and despair and the danger that even if we haven't got the guts to say, I'm no longer a Christian, I'm an atheist, we'll just slowly drift, drift, drift until we are cold and dead to God. God is wise and loving and generous and good. He gave his son for you. Cling to this. Drive it deep into your heart. God is good in what he's given and good in what he's withheld. And one day he'll be so abundantly good to you that you won't know what to do with it. Enjoy the freedom of living your life resting in the truth that the God who draws the boundary lines for you tomorrow and the next day and the next day is a God who is abundantly, eternally good and a God who has at his right hand for you eternal pleasures. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are sorry for how we fail to love other people and instead we resent them for the things you've given them. We're sorry for the way that we don't trust you and we doubt your goodness when you don't give us things we want. Help us to be humble enough to recognize that you know best. And help us not to have blind faith, but a faith grounded in the fact that you gave your son for us and therefore to trust that you are abundantly good and will always give us what we need. Help us too not to live just by sight, looking at this life, but help us to live by faith, looking at the life to come, knowing that one day we will enjoy eternal pleasures at your right hand, just as the Lord Jesus does. And so, Father, we pray we would be free from coveting, free to be generous and joyful 
and full of love for you and others. To your great glory. Amen.